The limited partner shares in the potential outsized returns of a well-planned and executed investment, but is a passive investor with no day-to-day -day operating requirements, whose liability is limited to the extent of their share of ownership. The limited partner has the maximum leverage on their most precious asset, their time. Now they say you're the average of the people you surround yourself with. Are you looking to elevate your network, connect with individuals that bring your average up? The Limited Partner is more than just a podcast. It's a community to learn, to participate, to connect. There's no other community out there like this for Limited Partners. So subscribe to the podcast, but most importantly, join the community at thelimitedpartner.com. Welcome to the podcast with your host, Jake Wiley. Welcome partners. This is your host, Jake Wiley. This week, I'm joined by Dan Kennedy of Driven Capital Partners. Dan, great to have you. Jake, thanks for having me on. This is going to be exciting, Dan. You've got a really cool background and how you got to where you are. So I'd love to really just kick off the show. Tell us your story. Yeah, I knew from a pretty early age, I wanted to be involved in real estate. I went to undergrad at UC Santa Barbara played soccer there and was focused at the time, this is 2004, of just trying to understand what the commercial real estate world was. And I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it was just focused on, at the time, education. And I went in to, to pursue a professional soccer career, which coincided with the Great Recession in 2008. And so I ended up having a longer soccer career than I anticipated. And while I was playing professionally, when I started making half decent money, I just started putting it to work in real estate, investing in single family homes, fix and flips, but always focused on passive income and cash flow if I couldn't fix and flip it the way I envisioned. So this evolved over time. And then I went to business school at USC in 2016, and I was exposed to syndication. So I started investing with a company called Champion Real Estate Group as an LP, as a limited partner. And it was a great way for me to scale my portfolio without impacting uh, my time or lack thereof because I had young kids and I was in business school and I was working full time and I already had a handful of single family homes that I was operating. So really, I started thinking on the LP side, like, okay, I want more real estate, but I don't have any more time. So let me go and start passively investing. Experience was so positive. As I wrapped up business school, my business partner, Matt and I both started driving. We left our previous careers and started driven capital partners sold off all of our single family homes to fund the business that we have today. That's a really cool story. Yeah, it's crazy. It's, it's funny. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, rich dad, poor dad kind of starting the fire did the same thing for me. Yeah, it's uh, getting into single family homes. That's always uh, it's an interesting challenge. I've done a lot of fix and flips. We've had a bunch of rentals. I'm actually under contract to sell my last property right now, kind of moving upstream. But that's that's where it all started. But I guess in terms of becoming a limited partner, I'm, I'm really interested in how how you, one, found out about that that opportunity, and then two, how did you get comfortable with it? It's not what they talk about in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Good question. I found out because one of my classmates, it was his family's shop. His name's Garrett Champion, and his dad, Bob Champion, is the founder of Champion Real Estate. And this is exactly how my business runs today, is it's relationship-driven, and it's trust-based. And when I see the, the crowdfunding sites, I'm sure there's plenty of great operators and great investments out there, but I, it's hard for me to get comfortable 
comfortable as an investor in those sites because I don't know who is behind the asset. And so we look at ourselves as a company, as a family office. It's the Kennedy and Seamus families that are driving the investment strategy. And we open it up to our friends and family to allow them to participate with us. And now we have 150 investors and that is, they're all personal relationships. So how did I get comfortable? It was through somebody I trusted and their track record spoke for itself. And I think in large part, how we've built and scaled our business with our investors has been relationship driven. And so anytime, I mean, we've been on a great run in the economy. Um, even with COVID, we buy apartments and industrial warehouses and COVID's actually increased valuations for us. And if we have an investor that has a problem, they can call us and go and try to solve that problem for them. So when I get, when we bring a deal to market, these people, we know that's the biggest thing. Whenever people talk or send me random deals to look at and give an opinion on, I can give my opinion. However, I always say the most important thing is who the operator is and knowing who they are, background checks. I mean, talk about like serious due diligence, you know, making sure these people are not tied up in other lawsuits that have stemmed from poor investments or, you know, they, maybe they were they have a history. Uh, you want that history to be clean slate. That's the weight I put into it. There's, there's a lot of really interesting things that you're saying there. One, obviously, the, the theme is trust based right? Like you're trying to find people that you trust, probably most of the limited partners or, you know, people looking to get into the game. That's probably one of their biggest fears, right? Is like, how do you know? Because a lot of times the guys that can speak the most eloquently and have the best presentation might be the worst operators. You don't know. You don't know. For our business, we are actually very selective on who we uh, will even bring in as a limited partner, as an investor, because it's a two-way street. We are always, predominantly, we are the biggest investor in every deal. In some instances, we're not because we'll have a 1031 exchange investor that'll have a large proceed that'll partner with us. But in all instances, we, Matt, and I own more of the deal than anyone else. And that's by design. You know, we don't want any one person in an investment thinking that they are entitled to something more than anyone else. And so we are focusing on, hey, eight to 10 great deals every single year. We think they're all solid deals. The reality is some are going to perform better than others. Let's us help you diversify into commercial real estate. You will have no debt liability. That's what we do. So nothing on your balance sheet shows that you have a loan anywhere. You have no operational responsibility. Uh, and in the end, you don't have to have the relationships to source the deal or manage the deal. We will do all of that and then we will report to you. That's a huge value proposition for people that are young and working and have a career in something other than real estate, but they know that they want to invest in real estate. So the value prop's easy. It's a matter of getting comfortable with the relationship that we have with our investors that says, yeah, you know what? You're a great candidate. You should try this. Why don't you start small in one deal and then we can build, you know? And so we have countless instances in which investors test us, you know? So if I had a hundred grand to invest in, in commercial real estate in 2022, I would be a little bit weary if I went to a, a sponsor and the sponsor said, well, I need all hundred grand for this deal. You know, what we would typically say is, hey, why don't you start with 25 grand and let's get you into four deals and let's just see how this year goes. 
and let's start slow. And so that's like putting myself in the mindset of an, of an LP is this is about putting your money to work in commercial real estate. Commercial real estate wealth is not created overnight. It's created over a very long period of time typically. And so you shouldn't have money that's burning a hole in your pocket. You should have a strategy to deploy that money so that you can de-risk what you're going and investing in. The year behind us has been so volatile and so crazy. It's hard to understand what's going to happen the year ahead. If I have a dollar, I'm certainly not going to try to spend it all in the next six weeks. I'm going to try to spread that buck across the board. And so that's, you know, we engage with a lot of interested investors weekly. And those conversations are largely high level about what Driven Capital Partners does, and then catering towards you, the limited partner, to understand what it is you're actually trying to achieve. We may not be able to even help you, right? What we're trying to understand is like, okay, let's let's make sure we're on the same page here. And then if we are, let's talk about what's going to happen in your life over the next year or two or three and then how we can help you. And then now we have kind of a playing field that is set. And now I can have an expectation for what you want to go and do. And typically what we've seen happen is after three or four deals, people now really actually start to experience the value that's being created in their portfolio. We get a real buy-in. We, we have a very long-term mindset. One of the things you said in there that's, that's interesting, it's not typical, I don't think, is you, know, you guys are in the deal for more than any other individual in Investors. That's our goal. And it's not always going to work out that way, but we look at what we do as really a family office. And now we're to a point where we can't, you know, we're, we're getting deal flow in a very tight market that we see opportunity and we can't always move on it. So that's when we bring in our investors to help fill the gap. Right. So in terms of, I guess, looking at deals in this current marketplace, I'm just curious, it is tight. Cap rates are way down. You know, owning a property is great. Selling a property is probably great, but trying to find properties, how, how are you guys doing that? Relationships. I mean, it's crazy. We're not the guys that sit at a, a best and final table and bid the highest for properties. We're not. We just, we've never been that way. We try to get quick looks on deals that are coming to market, try to get in the first offer based on a little bit of a reputation on guys that close deals that they get in contract. We do that. We've dropped, I think throughout our entire tenure, we've dropped out of six deals in contract. Five of those were COVID related. So we're conservative on that front, but we're trying to perform on everything that we get into contract. We work in the five to $20 million space, the true middle market, a little bit too expensive for the majority of high net worths and more and too small of a number for institutions. So it's a very inefficient market space. We can find opportunities there. We had a couple deals that were presented to us in the last four weeks that were tax related deals where the owner was like, hey, I got to sell and I need you. I need someone to buy it before the end of the year for tax reasons. We're going to pick up a property here in town. We're closing on another one and in, in St. Louis because of that. And cap rates are interesting. We buy a lot of industrial warehouses. Cap rates are very important to us in the industrial warehouses because they're stabilized assets typically. So it's just a reflection of what we can expect from cash flow in years one, two, and three. And the apartments that we invest in, we really don't care about the going in cap rate. It's really more about what the market is doing and what we think we can turn the property into. And so, you know, we've bought two and a half caps and made money on them, but it's because we're changing the way the property operates. And with how competitive the market is, we've been willing to sell things that we never thought we would sell. You know, it's, it's an opportunity opportunity to take wins, sold more property this year than we anticipated. And that's now going to 
bolster some cash reserves and give us the opportunity to go and chase bigger deals. In terms of maybe what would be like a mistake that an LP can make? I know you've kind of hinted at it. And then kind of the follow-on question is, I guess, what are the mistakes that you've learned from from your side, being the GP, the sponsor, working with LPs? You know, if I'm going to go put money to work with somebody that I've never worked with before, I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. Just be cautious. It would behoove you to go and try to meet these people, the team. You know, who's the team? Let's go meet them in person if we can make that happen. If it's not possible, then you can do something like this. You know, you can learn a lot. Like you try to get comfortable with people in this type of setting. We work off of financial projections and on paper, you can make a lot of deals look good, especially if you're not necessarily the savviest investor in real estate and you're just learning. So it's okay to to be the person that asks a bunch of questions as well. I expect it. On the fifth iteration of a deal for our investors in our pool, the questions die down quite a bit. Our apartment deals kind of look the same. All of our industrial deals kind of look the same. So people start to learn how we present and they have less questions. But with new investors, I expect to have two hour long phone calls like this where I'm walking them through the cash flow model to help them understand why we think what we're saying is going to happen. Um, so be the squeaky wheel. You know, I think the mistake is that, oh, I got 25 grand I want to put to work right now. And then you go just find the next deal you can get in. There's plenty of people out there that are just going to be like, yeah, dump in your cash, you know, put your money into our deal. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be in a rush. I'd be pretty uh, thorough. And even talking, like, as I think out loud, talking to multiple sponsors, probably a good idea just to get a gauge of, of who you think is sharp uh, versus who's maybe skipping over a few steps. Right. So what about on your side? I guess what lessons have you learned dealing with investors? I mean, ours has been a very positive experience. There's going to be situations that come up and where investors need to get out of a deal. And that's where, you know, like we buy investors out of deals. Well, it's not something we want to do when we get into it. When we bring an investor in, it's always for the duration of the deal. But things happen, things come up, and it's a lot easier to buy someone out when the deal is performing. We've never been in a position where a deal is not performing and we had to buy someone out. That would turn into a tougher negotiation. But we're mindful of the fact that, you know, throughout us doing business, moving on to the future, this is going to happen every year to us. We're going to have to solve some financial problems for people that are invested into deals of ours. And it's kind of the part of, of doing business. Other things I've learned is more people are open to 1031 exchanging. You know, like we do three, five year investment horizons. And at the end of the, that time, it goes goes by. And at the end of it, we're like, Hey, you know, your $2 turned into $4. Would you like your money back? Or would you be open to a 1031 exchange just to like gauge the interest? And a lot of people are interested in 1031 exchanging. And we don't, I think this is a, maybe a, a key point to what differentiates driven capital partners from a lot of sponsorship groups is we have, and, and we continue to 1031 exchange. doesn't mean we'll do it every time, but it's a lever we're pulling, which is it's very creative to the investor because you don't pay a huge tax liability. And now you can continue to grow your wealth. So yeah, those are two biggest things. I guess in, in terms of the industry itself, the market, what would you change if you could? I don't know. It's it's a highly inefficient marketplace and I don't want it to get any more efficient. Like think of the stock market, you know, today everything's down. It's instant trading and now it's computer trading. And so every stock value is optimally priced for what's happening in the world every given moment. You know, maybe value companies there that we could invest in, but real estate is so inefficient. That's what I love about it. Um, so I, when I think about the things that could improve the marketplace, I don't want them to happen. <laughs> 
you know, because that's where that's that's where the opportunity is. We live in a market in Santa Barbara, California, that is almost impossible to develop in. And it's an infill location. There's no more buildable space. We're on the beach, pressed up against a mountain range. So true infill, you can't create more land to develop here. It's very hard to get through the city code to build. But this is something that we see as a huge opportunity because if you can solve that problem, then you can be the guys that can go and build in town. And that's going to be an accretive proposition to investors because you can bring new inventory online that doesn't currently exist. We actually see the maybe some of the biggest inefficiencies in real estate as the biggest opportunities. So I I like (laughs) I like how things are working right now. We want certainty, you know, like investors want certainty in the market investments. So keep everything the same. Yeah, I think, you know, what you bring up there is interesting because I, I love real estate for the numbers, right? And the economics that are there, but there's an art to it as well, right? You see a property, you have a vision, you acquire it, you push your vision through. That's the thing that I've always liked, right? And it's different for everybody else. And, you know, one person's vision would be different from another's. And then obviously there's what's highest and best use. And sometimes there's a big change, but that's the part that keeps me going, right? You do the deal and then you have to like actually execute. And I think it's the execution where there's a little bit of art and that's where I get to be personally an artist. And I mean, I I think you're kind of saying that to a certain degree is that because of your vision and because of what you're able to do and the relationships you're able to build, there are things that you can do that probably nobody else could do. And that's kind of what makes the day-to-day fun. Yeah, that's in the apartment space for us. We we have a good time being creative with what we're bringing to market. Some of we're, some of it we're handicapped with design because the city won't let us do what we want to do. It's too innovative. But providing awesome housing, something that I would love to live in. The industrial stuff is more vanilla. The more boring, the better we consider it. Like we want a square rectangular box, 24 foot clear ceilings, and just plain Jane, just as simple as possible. Because the reality is all kinds of businesses can operate in that kind of space. It's a, it's a good balance from an investment thesis perspective. It, uh, those two asset classes are complementary to one another too. They're both a necessary space. Typically in industrial warehouses, you have logistics or some type of manufacturing happening in that space. And then you have housing and one is super affordable to build and uh, to purchase on a price per square foot perspective. The other one is very expensive. So like we see them as just paired really well together when you're thinking about what you're optimizing for apartments, we create value through equity because we change the use of the building. And then industrial warehouse, the value is created through passive income, through paying down the principal of the loan, not necessarily the asset appreciating. It's truly two like forces working in completely different directions. As we kind of wrap up the show, I always say that like we never get here on our own, right? We got to give somebody props that kind of gave us a leg up along the way. Who out there would you like to give a shout out to, give some gratitude to? My business partner. We're two guys that previous to Dream Capital Partners did not work in real estate. We invested in real estate, but we did not work in it. And I think that's it's unique for sure. Most guys that do what we do started at another investment firm and syndicated somewhere else. So we've challenged each other. We continue to in a healthy way to take some risk, but to take it in a responsible way. And we look up after four years and we've built something and it's going to grow. It's going to continue to grow. We're in an exciting place right now of growth. 
That's awesome, man. It's always great when you find a a partnership pair that's got a great dynamic. Yeah, and we could not be like more opposite of individuals, which is good balance. It is. Well, Dan, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it, man. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Limited Partner Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. If there's any reason you wouldn't leave us a five-star review, please email me directly at jw at jakewiley.com. Your feedback is always appreciated. Now, the show is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the limited partner community. It's a community where limited partners can come together, learn about what best in class looks like, opportunities, and most importantly, a place to connect. There is nothing out there like this. So head over to thelimitedpartner.com and sign up. We'll see you next time.